This morning we're doing something slightly different. If you've not been with us recently, uh, once a month at the moment, we are doing something called RBT, Read the Bible Together. And so where usually on a Sunday morning we would be working more slowly through a book of the Bible, once a month we're taking our whole book, doing an overview in about 30 minutes, and then going away as a church throughout the month and reading through that book of the Bible together. So this morning, I think this is our fifth one now, so we're becoming old hands at this. This morning, we are going to do an overview at the book of Genesis. So it's Genesis that we're going to be spending time in this coming month as a church. If you've got a Bible, please do open up to Genesis. We're obviously not going to read it all, but there are some key points that I'd like to point us to as we go through it, and so it'd be great to follow along with your Bible in hand. Uh, Also, I should just point out, Hopefully everybody, most people found one of these on their chair. This is just put together as a bit of a help for us this month. Uh, You don't need to refer to it right now, but something to take home. Uh, And also before we begin, let me just say one more time, um, point you one more time to the uh, Bible Project uh, online resources uh, that there are. We include these on the email that will go out to everyone in the church this afternoon. Um, these guys have put together amazing overviews of Bible books, and once again, I've really leaned on them this week uh, as we look at Genesis, so do look there. Okay, why don't we pray together as we begin. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you that you speak to us week by week and day by day through the power of your word, your living word to us. Lord, we thank you that we can We can dig down deep into your word, that we can spend time, a week together, looking at a a single verse and finding such treasure within. But Lord, we thank you also that you've been helping us to get to know the bigger picture, the grand storyline of the Bible. We pray, Lord, that you'd help us again today. Lord, would you help us to understand the message of Genesis? Lord, would you set us up this morning for going away and reading it uh, together as a church? We pray, Lord, most of all, that you would lift up Jesus in our midst. Uh, Even this morning as we look at this book together, Lord, may he be glorified, magnified before our very eyes. We pray in his name. Amen. Today, as much as ever, people love stories, especially big epic ones. Stories that take you on a journey and build toward a big resolution in the end. Uh, Thinking about TV, Lost was always the classic example of this. Or the Marvel Cinematic Universe is a great example in the movies. Uh, Some of us here I know paid recently to go and see Avengers Endgame. Uh, The culmination of a massive 11 years, 22 movie story arc. I thought it was worth it. It took over $2.5 billion in ticket sales. I think one of the reasons that people love these epic tales with huge story arcs is that actually history itself is just this kind of story, whether people recognize it or not. And in all of these great stories, beginnings really matter. Everything is set up at the start. If you miss the beginning and you jump in halfway through, you're left asking yourself, who are these people? Why are they in the predicament that they're in? What clues were there at the beginning that might point to where things are going to resolve at the end? So watching or reading from the very beginning really matters. And Genesis, of course, is a book of beginnings. The word Genesis actually means beginning. But it's not just the beginning of the Bible. 
Genesis sets up the story arc, the grand narrative of all of human history. And many people assume that human history is just a matter of chaos and chance, that we can't know where we came from, we can't explain why we're here today, and we can't know where the future will ultimately lead. But the book of Genesis tells a very different story. It is the beginning of the true story that moves on a sure and certain path from creation to new creation, all according to God's good and perfect plan. Genesis sets up all that follows, both in the Bible and in human history. It's also, of course, a book full of lots of smaller stories, which can make it tempting for us sometimes to just kind of dive in at random and and pick up a tale from here and there. But the best way to really understand Genesis is to look at it as one book, to read it as a continuous narrative, which is what we're going to begin to do this morning. So how do we start to get our bearings in just 30 minutes uh, in a book that's got 50 chapters, full of stories, full of so much? Well, perhaps the most helpful place to begin is to think about Genesis as a book of two parts. Chapters 1 to 11 tell the story of God and his relationship with the whole world. Time, we'll see, moves quickly in these chapters. We're given a bird's eye view of creation, the fall, people multiplying, sin growing, the flood coming, uh, the building of the Tower of Babel. And then in chapters 12 to 50, the second half, things begin to slow down and zoom in as the rescue begins. The focus becomes God and the relationship that he has with one particular family. Uh, So these two parts are unequal in length, I know. It's not that I'm bad at maths. It's 1 to 11 and 12 to 50, two halves. But we're going to spend about an equal amount of time in each of those parts this morning. So first up, part one, God and the world. This is chapters 1 to 11. Genesis begins, of course, maybe almost everybody knows this, with God making everything out of nothing. God creates the heavens and the earth, speaking each element into being by the power of his word, light and air, sea and sky, all the creatures that roam across the land. And seven different times, God looks at what he's made and he says, this is good. This is very good. And then finally, saving the best to last, God makes people. A man and a woman, the pinnacle and the crown of his creation. The only creatures made in the image of God, which means that ingrained into their very essence is a special purpose to reflect God's character to rule and care for God's world on his behalf and to make it a place where even more life can flourish. And the place that they get to begin this project, this amazing project, is in a beautiful garden, Eden. Just picture for a moment what uh, life might have been like in that place. We're not told exactly how big this is, but but picture definitely much more a national park than perhaps your back garden at home, uh, unless you've got an amazing garden. This garden is chock full of blossoming trees and plants and animals. We're told there are great rivers and streams and rich mineral resources to harness and build with. And best of all, for the food lovers amongst us, God gives them all manner of things to eat. 
So in chapter 2, verse 9, we read, Out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. Chapter 1, verse 29, God says to them, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. This is paradise. This is food paradise. And they're invited to share with God in enjoying all that he's made. But there's just one tree amongst all of the others that they're told that they mustn't eat from. God tells them, chapter 2, verse 16, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now, what's that all about? Well, it's not, as some people might mistakenly think, a tree that will help them know the difference between good and evil. This tree is about who gets to decide what is good and what is evil. Up to now, God has been the one to say what is good. But with this tree, the man and woman face a decision. Will they go on trusting God? Or will they reject what he says and attempt to define good and evil for themselves? Now, in love for them, God warns them that to rebel will mean death because they'll be turning their backs on the life giver, the giver of life. His life-giving goodness is actually there on display. This tree that we're talking about is there in the middle of the garden. And, and also in the middle of the garden, maybe right next to it, is the tree of life. God's life-giving goodness on display. That tree is a reminder that true life and freedom and blessing can only be found in trusting God. So everything hangs on the choice between these two trees. Then in chapter 3, an unnamed serpent appears in the garden. We're, we're not told much about this creature at this stage, except that it's more crafty than all the other creatures, which is not a good sign. And this serpent begins to paint a different picture for the man and the woman, begins to tell a different story. It sows suspicion in their minds about what God really said and about why he really said it. And this serpent tells them that eating the fruit won't in fact lead to death, but will lead to them becoming like God, which is a terrible lie. Because, of course, they're already like God. They've already been made in his image, made to reflect God, to be like him on the earth. But now, believing the serpent's lies and, and with this new desire rising in them for autonomy from God, they pluck the fruit and eat it, and in an instant, everything spirals out of control. Genesis 3 is a record of the greatest tragedy in all of human history. And this terrible decision becomes the starting place for all human sin and all of its devastating consequences. Everything shatters as a result of what takes place in this chapter. The fallout as well is felt immediately. First of all, there's a rift that appears between the man and the woman. Up to now, they've been happily naked together, but suddenly they feel ashamed. Then they begin to blame each other for the sin that they just committed. It's fair to say that all human conflict traces its path back to this moment. And secondly, a rift is created between them and God. 
Where they once walked eagerly with him in the garden, now they hear him coming and they hide away in fear. They want to escape his gaze. And as a result of their rebellion, God tells them what his response must now be. First of all, he pronounces a curse upon the serpent. From now on, he says, it will travel around on its belly, eating the dust, which is a visual reminder that this tempter is destined for destruction. But more about that in a moment. For the, for the man and the woman, God pronounces that previously unknown hardships will come into their daily lives, into their relationships, into childbearing, and into work out in the field. And ultimately, he tells them that they're banished from the garden and from his presence, that they will die because of what they've done. It's a terrible, terrible end to a profoundly wonderful beginning. Yet, even in this most tragic of chapters, there is a a glimmering ray of hope. Because before they leave the garden, God announces the very first gospel promise that we have recorded in the Bible. It's a wonderful verse, chapter 3, verse 15. This promise is going to be the seed for all that follows in the story. God promises that one day a descendant of the woman will deliver a lethal blow to the serpent's head. And at the same time, the serpent will bruise that descendant's heel. So Adam and Eve's hope now lies in the promise of a wounded victor, one who will take their curse upon himself and destroy the devil's work. For now, of course, this promise is all kind of shrouded in mystery. But what a testimony it is. We've got to see this. What a testimony to God's mercy and kindness that even before they're put outside of the garden, he gives them this hope to take with them, this gospel promise. And we're also told before they go about the first sacrifice, the first ever sacrifice in the Bible, God himself providing animal skins to cover them as they leave. It's another pointer to what God is going to do in the future to bring them back to him. And so Adam and Eve leave the garden. They're cut off now from the tree of life. In the chapters that follow, from chapter 4 to chapter 11, the effects of sin just widen and multiply like an epidemic, with human relationships in particular becoming more and more destructive at every turn. So chapter 4 tells the story of the two brothers, Cain and Abel. Cain becomes so jealous of his brother that he wants to kill him. God warns Cain, again out of love, not to give in to his sinful desire, but Cain ignores the warning goes out into the field with Abel and commits the very first murder. Then we read of Lamech, the, I, think, I think the great-great-great-grandson of Cain, who possesses many wives, not good, and who loves to boast and even write songs about how he's far more vengeful than Cain ever was. He's not just violent, he's proud about it. He's writing songs about it. He, today he'd be releasing albums to celebrate it. And throughout chapters 5 and 6, as people continue to multiply, so too does this kind of wickedness, humanity's wickedness. Instead of stewarding God's world as they were meant to do, they fill it with ever-increasing violence and corruption. It just gets worse and worse and spiraling down and down until finally uh, we read some heartbreaking words in chapter 6. Have a look at, I've not put down the reference here, have a look at near the beginning of chapter 6. It says this, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, 
and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. See, God is not indifferent and detached as he looks down on man's wickedness. It grieves him to his heart. And so he determines to send a great flood to wash the world clean of humanity's evil. And this, of course, could easily be the end of the story. Uh, We could have a six-chapter Bible, except that we wouldn't be here to have it. Uh, It could just be God made us and blessed us. We rebelled and chose death. And God kept his promise. Everyone died. The end. That would only be what we deserve. But in his mercy, it's not what God will do. He, we see as we read Genesis, will not abandon humanity. However wicked we've become. And so he sets out to rescue Noah, telling him to prepare for the coming judgment by building himself and his family an ark. Now, this must have been a real test of faith for Noah. We might find it hard in day-to-day life, we think, in difficult situations to to really trust God and his promises. But just imagine being told to build an enormous boat in the middle of the desert, many hundreds of miles from the sea. Yet Noah hears what God tells him, that judgment is coming, that only an ark will save him, and he believes. It's a powerful picture of what true saving faith looks like. He and his family are saved, not because they're better than anybody else, but because they trust God's promise of rescue, and they respond by getting into the ark. One thing I discovered this week, interestingly, is that the earliest Christians would, the earliest Christians would sometimes draw pictures of an ark uh, attached to a cross to remind themselves that now Christ himself has become our ark. Jesus is the one in whom we can safely ride out the flood of God's judgment. That was pretty cool. Anyway, so the flood comes, and then we know the waters subside, and Noah and his family leave the ark. And really, and as you read this, look out for this. It looks like we're witnessing humanity 2.0, with Noah as the new Adam, and, and maybe this is a whole new start for, for mankind Even down to the way that God commissions Noah, that the words are virtually identical between chapter 1, verse 28, when he was talking to Adam, and then chapter 9, verse 1, where he says to Noah, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. It really looks like everything is back on track. A fresh start for humanity. Except that, just half a chapter later, Noah fails too. And once again, ironically, it's in a garden Having planted a vineyard, which is a good thing, he proceeds to get drunk, which is not a good thing. And in fact, Noah is so wasted that he collapses naked and unconscious in his tent. And and then we're told, we're not told the details, but but to add to the tragedy, one of his sons comes, comes and does something shameful. And it's just like deja vu. Here is the new Adam, naked and ashamed, just like the first. And then the rapid slide into wickedness and sin just begins all over again. Humans multiply and grow again throughout chapter 10, but it's just as bad as before. Until arriving at chapter 11, we find people uniting together, which sounds good but isn't, because they're united with evil ambition. Driven by pride, they want to build a great city, Babylon, 
with a huge tower in its midst that will reach up to the heavens and so make a great name for themselves on the earth. It's the height of arrogance. It's another ridiculous attempt to be like God. And in a revealing and almost funny turn of phrase, having built this great tower that's supposed to make them as high and mighty as God himself, the narrator tells us that the Lord has to come down to take a look. Just reveals again the stupidity, the folly of human pride. What we're told God also recognizes, though, is that this city will surely become a terrible place. And this is only the beginning of what they will do together to multiply their evil and wickedness. And so in another act of mercy, he confuses their language and disperses them over the face of all the earth. And so we come to the end of the first half of Genesis with the people dispersed and everything looks hopeless. Uh, but what have we learned? What do we learn as we read through these chapters? We learn, for one thing, that when humans reject God and choose to define good and evil for themselves, it will only ever result in tragedy and death. Which I think should be a sobering thought for us today, because the world we live in is, is just as passionate about redefining good and evil for itself. And we've only got to look to see the violence and the misery and the broken relationships that surround us as a result. At this point in the story, we might actually be wondering, what hope is there for humanity then? Is there any hope? Well, yes, there is. But hopefully we're already seeing it. This hope cannot depend on what people can do for themselves. It cannot be something that, that, that men and women can put right for themselves. Surely only God can rescue and restore his broken world. And it's in the very next chapter that he begins to tell us exactly how he's going to do it. So part two, I've called this the rescue begins. So we had God and the world and now the rescue begins. Genesis chapters 12 to 50. And it's as chapter 12 begins, just helpful to note that this is when time seems to kind of slow down in the, in the telling of the tale. And the focus zooms right in on one particular man, Abram, or as he'll later come to be known, Abraham, and the promises that God makes to him. Some people actually, with good reason, see chapter 12, verses 1 to 3, as being perhaps the most crucial event in the Bible between the fall of Adam and the coming of Christ. Perhaps the most important event between, those, between the fall of Adam, Genesis 3, and the coming of Christ at the beginning of the New Testament. Certainly, these three verses set the trajectory now, not just for the rest of Genesis, but for the whole of the rest of the Bible. Here, God begins to play out his great master plan for rescuing his world. And it all begins with him calling this complete nobody, Abraham, to pack up and leave his home. Here's what God says to him, chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Now the Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great. Now, we're surely meant to notice this, both the similarity and the contrast with the events of chapter 11. The people of Babylon had set out to make a great name for themselves in rebellion against God, and God had scattered them. 
But now God says that he will bestow a great name on this small, insignificant man, Abraham. And better still, the language of blessing is meant to point us back again to God's blessing that he gave to Adam in the garden in the beginning. But perhaps best of all, perhaps best of all here, is why God says that he's going to give this blessing to Abraham. He says, chapter 12, verse 3, so that all the families of the earth might be blessed in him. Here is the beginning of God's rescue plan, not just to save Abraham, but to rescue and bless the whole world, to restore humanity back to the goodness of the garden. Abraham is just where the rescue will begin. And that's why the whole of the second half of Genesis, and really the if you like, the whole of the rest of the Old Testament is going to focus on this one particular family as it grows. It's not obvious at this stage quite how God will do it, but chapter 12 is meant to hook us more than any Netflix series can ever do and compel us to read on with eager anticipation to see just how God will accomplish all that he has promised to do. Uh, Now, one more thing before we sweep on through it. One more important thing to mention about Abraham and his descendants is they're not meant to be good examples of, uh, good moral examples for us. We mustn't read Genesis as just a series of character studies of people for us to imitate. Often they are anything but good moral examples. Uh, And two things, two themes that you see running through chapters 12 to 50 are on the one hand, Abraham and his descendants repeatedly messing up. And seemingly again and again putting God's promise in jeopardy. And on the other hand, God repeatedly rescuing them from their folly and continuing to reiterate his promise to bless them and to bless the whole world through them. So first of all, we have, of course, Abraham. Uh, He's kind of the main character in chapters 12 to 23. And oh boy, does he mess up. Just just consider again that the very essence of God's promise to Abraham is that he will give him, he promises to give him a family. Him and Sarah, his wife, he will give them children. Yet twice, in chapter 12 and chapter 20, fearing for his life, Abraham denies that Sarah is even his wife and he gives her away to other men. Sarah, for her, her part, who we might just think, okay, she's the victim there, she, growing impatient with God's promise of a child, makes Abraham sleep with her servant girl, which then, of course, leads to all kinds of family problems and a mess as well. But each time, God rescues them from their mess and repeats his covenant promises to Abraham. On one occasion, God invites Abraham to look up at the night sky and to count the stars. And he says to Abraham, this is how numerous your family will be. And Abraham, we're told, believes God, and that is counted to him as righteousness. So here in Genesis chapter 15, Abraham is justified by faith. It's the very same kind of faith that saves you and I today if and when we put our trust in Jesus. It's a faith that recognizes that the rescue depends entirely on God. This fact, actually, that God alone can save comes through again and again in the second half of Genesis. Uh, So for one example, when God formalizes his promise with Abraham later in chapter 15, notice it's God alone who swears to keep the covenant. He alone passes through uh, these pieces of dead animal that have been set out 
not Abraham with him, because nothing depends on Abraham. It all depends on God, who promises to be faithful. And then another example, just uh, some years later in chapter 22, after the long-awaited birth of Isaac, God calls Abraham to sacrifice that very same promised son. Uh, And if you know the story, you'll know as they climb up the hill, Isaac asks his father, where is the lamb for the sacrifice? And Abraham, perhaps speaking better than he knows, tells his son that God will provide the lamb. And God does exactly that. Providing a substitutionary lamb to save Isaac, just as he would one day, centuries later, provide the ultimate substitutionary lamb, Jesus, as a sacrifice to take away the sin of the world. The biggest thing to take away from Abraham's life is that God's rescue plan is unstoppable precisely because it depends on him and him alone. The next main character to come under the spotlight is Jacob uh, from chapters 25 to 36. You can, you'll be glad to see we're speeding up. Um, he's Isaac's son, Jacob, and unsurprisingly, the same themes play out again. Jacob is definitely not a model of virtue. Don't go home and copy Jacob. His name actually means deceiver, and he really lives up to the meaning of his name in spades. First, he wants his older brother Esau's inheritance, and so he cheats him out of it by deceiving Get this, their old blind father. I mean, it's just, it is criminal behavior. And then he just ups and leaves his family. But the messed up family relations don't end there. Jacob ends up taking not one wife, but two, and then two concubines as well. And he has various children through each of them, and it causes again all sorts of relational problems. Meanwhile, his own uncle Laban effectively cheats Jacob out of years of his life. But once again, none of this upsets God's plans to rescue the nations through this crazily dysfunctional family because it's all of grace. And having finally humbled Jacob, God meets with him one night and he passes on Abraham's promised blessing to him. And at the same time, he renames Jacob Israel. The final part of the book tells the story of Jacob's sons. And it's here that all of the themes that we've been seeing so far really do come together and come to a head. Jacob has 12 sons, but quite terribly, he loves one of his sons, Joseph, much more than all the rest. No parent should ever have a favorite child, but Jacob does. And he publicizes his favoritism by giving Joseph a robe of many colors. We all know the story from our children's Bibles, or maybe we've seen the Andrew Lloyd Webber musical. Well, hopefully we've read it in our Bible. But he gives him this coat. And, um, and his brothers looking on, seeing their father's favoritism, his bias towards Joseph, his ten older brothers come to despise Joseph. And they plot against him to kill him. At the last moment, though, they change their minds, but it doesn't get much better. They decide instead to sell him into slavery in Egypt. Their own brother selling him into slavery. And if we're, if we're not there already, maybe as, you, as we read through this this month, when we get to this point, we'll be asking ourselves, saying to ourselves, this is like the worst possible family in the world. Jeremy Kyle, I think, would have a field day with interviewing these kind of people in the daytime. Why on earth did God choose this family to bring about his plan of rescue to the world? But that, of course, is exactly the point. 
God is on a mission to rescue the worst of the worst. He's not rescuing the righteous of whom there are none, but he's rescuing sinners. And Abraham and his family are, of course, just like us. And so despite the wickedness of these brothers, God goes with Joseph into Egypt and ultimately raises him up to become second in command over the whole land, placing Joseph in just the right place at just the right time to save all of Egypt from a great famine which is much to the surprise and the shock of his brothers, who, traveling to Egypt in search of food, find none other than the brother they betrayed, now ruling the land and in a position to either take their lives or save them. And this final encounter between Joseph and his, and his, and, and his brothers in chapter 45 presents a beautiful picture of what we've been witnessing all the way through the book of Genesis like a face-off between, on the one hand, sinful, rebellious humans, and on the other hand, a gracious, merciful God. On the one side, we've got the brothers, arrogant, selfish, violent, ungodly, just like every other character in Genesis, just like us. And now they're standing before the rightful ruler, the one they betrayed, and they know that they deserve to die. But on the other side is Joseph, who now sees how God can subvert the greatest human evil into an occasion to save life. And it's Joseph's words to his brothers in chapter 50, verse 20, that really sum up the whole of the book of Genesis. Here's the summary verse, if you like. Joseph says to them, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive. From Genesis 3 onwards, people have been, human beings have been acting selfishly, choosing evil again and again, rejecting God, and at every turn it looks like they're going to ruin God's good plan for his world. But God is not willing to let that happen. He keeps turning what humanity means for evil back into good. He's determined to rescue and bless people despite their sin and failure. His rescue plan is unstoppable and it's already in motion. Just before we close, think back to God's very first promise, that first gospel promise. After the man and the woman ate the fruit, he promised that a wounded victor, a descendant of the woman, would one day come to crush the snake and defeat evil at its source. Now we, we've now begun to see that rescue is going to come through the line of Abraham, but there's more. In chapter 49, the promise gets connected from Abraham and Isaac and Jacob to Judah, the fourth son of Jacob. And so as Jacob lies on his deathbed, he blesses each of his sons, and when he turns to Judah, he predicts that one day a king will come through his line, and all the nations will turn back to him. And that king will restore God's the end of the world in the book of Revelation. Now we can look, of course, we can look ahead, of course, to the very end of the story in the book of Revelation, which you should never do, of course, looking ahead in a book and spoiling the end, but we're going to do it anyway. There we find a king standing beside a heavenly throne, and this is what those around the throne declare. Behold. This is Revelation 5, verse 5. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, 
the root of David has conquered. And then verse 9 and 10, they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, going out to the whole world. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. There's the blessing restored. It's Jesus, of course, the promised descendant, the snake crusher, the rescuer that would come through the line of Abraham to restore God's original blessing to his people. But that is to spoil the ending, of course. The book of Genesis ends with all of these future hopes and promises uh, still left hanging, uh, still to be developed as if to tantalize us to carry on and, and read even more of our Bibles. But for now, let's throw ourselves together into reading Genesis this month, marveling at the might and the mercy of the God whose rescue cannot be thwarted. Let's pray.